Hey, Tim, haven't haven't Hello. seen you in a very, very long time. Or I haven't spoken in a long time. I, no, can't even I, think it was... I can't even remember when we saw each other last. Well, I think the last time we spoke, I was living in Norwich. So we're probably talking about 10, 11 years ago, because I, I moved away from there in 2013. So. Wow, wow. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, you've, you've kept kept building and like releasing solo records, which uh, actually was, I mean, I don't want to say it was a surprise because I knew you were well connected with other people you played with and mm. stuff, and but that you were such an active active writer. Now, like how many solo albums have you put out by now? Um, well, it's now seven officially, but I've written six over the last 10 years. Um, but I've always written. I mean, the thing is that I've always kind of written songs. So uh, with No Man, for example, you know, Schoolyard Ghosts came together as a result of songs that I'd initially written or co-written and then took to Stephen. So I think I've always kind of had a body of work where I've written uh, purely by myself. And, and also I love kind of collaborating as well. So um It was a combination, really. And I think that um, Abandoned Dance or Dreams, I mean, the first of the kind of latest run of solo albums, that was originally intended as my follow-up to Schoolyard Ghost by No Man. So I'd written quite a number of pieces, and I'd co-written a number of pieces. And I sent them to Stephen, and Stephen really liked them. We'd done a No Man tour in 2012, and we'd even performed a couple of tracks live. I mean, uh, Warm Up Man Forever being a good example. And... As we were about to embark on this, Stephen was fully committed to his solo work and then said, look, I just don't have the time to commit to being a part of this, but it's your album anyway. I'll mix it. It's your solo album. Um, so in a way, it was kind of, you know, Abandoned Dancehall Dreams was my idea of what was going to be the No Man follow-up to Schoolyard Ghosts, um, but obviously with Stephen input. Um And then, of course, we did um, resume No Man activity with uh, Love You To Bits a few years later. So, you know, we'd always kept in contact and always continued to work together. Uh, was My Hotel Year actually your first solo album? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, although I never really considered it to be um, a solo album in, in the mm. sense that I kind of dictated it and obviously got the uh, the mixing engineer involved, David Picking, and got the musicians involved. But to me, um, my hotel year was a way of collecting lots of disparate projects. Because at the time, you know, we'd been working in Centrazoon. I'd been working with Stephen Bennett and Henry Fool. I'd also been writing mm -hmm. with Hugh Hopper, who used to be in Soft Machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and none of these things were going anywhere. So I kind of had about six different projects that were going nowhere and I thought okay I'm going to put an end to this and I just <laughs> selected what I thought were the best of those pieces and um mm -hmm. and then got David Picking to mix it so it had a sense of coherence mm -hmm. um but yeah it never really felt like a kind of solo album where I had an idea for an album a thread running through it it was much more like five or six disparate projects They're going nowhere. Let's get the best elements. So, you know, in all of those, there's, there's tracks that you and I have done that we haven't released. There's tracks that I've written with Hugh Hopper that we've never released and and so on. So, so that was what I kind of consider my whole year was Abandoned Dance or Dreams. Although I'd conceived it as a No Man album, it was conceived as an album. You know, I went into this thinking, okay, this is the album. These are the tracks I'm building towards 
something concrete. So in terms of the the artwork, the themes, the music itself, it was much more focused. You know, my hotel year is weirdly it's a it's a collection, it's a compilation. And so abandoned dance hall dreams then would be like the first release of the new era, or how would you describe yeah, I that? think I think so, definitely. And and when it had been released i think the response to it was um so positive that i just kind of immediately launched myself into writing the follow-up stupid mm -hmm. things that mean the world and so that kind of in terms of its artwork and some of its themes it was a direct bounce off abandoned dancehall dreams and i think that you know for me music it's it, it's it's two things really in, in which I, i write one is you go against everything you've ever done and you rip it up. Mm -hmm. Two is the album is a continuation of what's gone before. So if I think in terms of No Man, um, Flower Mouth was a logical continuation of what the band had been working up to. Once that had been done, Stephen and I ripped the rule book up and we did World Opera. Um, and, uh, you know, again, with um, with No Man, I think Together With Stranger came directly out of the emotions and experiments that we'd started on Returning Jesus. So it was a logical follow up. Whereas when I was working with you with Centrazine, that was another scorched earth policy. It was like wild opera. It was we're going into this with no preconceptions. Mm -hmm. What can we do? And, and I remember, you know, waking up, I think you'd, you'd put me in a German hotel in the middle of the Ruggerby. I was, I was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and I was thinking, what on earth am I going to do in an hour's time when you pick me up? You know, I think we had no conception mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. what we were going to create. And that was exciting in itself. So, you know, making an album like Wild Opera was exciting because Stephen and I just gave ourselves an hour to write, record, complete pieces of music. And, and over about a year, we came up with 30 maybe 40 pieces many of which haven't been released some of them we kept as they were because they just sounded right we were never going to improve upon them some of them we developed into more complete songs and that was exactly I suppose the process we used with Centrosine that we went into this with no ideas and I think over two days we probably produced what two and a half three hours worth of music Yeah, um, which which we then drew on for the next three years. You know. Yes, yes, um, yeah. It's it's a fascinating pro, uh, process. Um, I mean, in music, it's not it's not something. I mean, just instrumental music. It's certainly nothing new. But what was really fascinating for me was the way that you were incorporating the lyrics. I mean, obviously, you had like small little ideas, like phrases. Yeah. But how you then sort of like improvised. Uh, words that, that I mean it still gives me goosebumps thinking about it being in Bernard's studio back then and yeah. you were coming up with these great really great I think still think really great lyrics uh in well know, I think as well I think what it was it was on the spot because basically you know you'd uh brought me over there and I felt I had to deliver so in a sense there was a <laughs> there was a kind of attention within me because I thought you know I have to do something And some of the lyrics, you know, I remember one of our uh, pieces, 10 Versions of America, I think I'd picked up a phrase that I'd seen on CNN that morning and played with the phrase. So ideas were coming in from anywhere and 
everywhere. Um, and, it, and it's an exciting thing to, to do. I mean, I, I suppose in a way I've been kind of doing it over the last year because I'm writing a new solo album. Well, I finished it. And the new solo album, it's the first time ever where it's a solo, solo album. It's just me. I'm mm-hmm. playing everything, the guitar, the keyboards, doing all mm-hmm. of the programming because I've never done that before. Um, and partly, you know, throwing myself into it, as soon as I kind of got a key to it, the ideas just flowed. And I think that was similar to Wild Opera. It was similar to Centrazine, that when you find yourself in that zone, if it clicks with the musicians you're working with, which obviously in the solo case, it clicks because it's me I'm working with, um, mm. the ideas just pour out. And in some ways, you don't quite know where they're coming from. So I'm now kind of going through the process where Stephen is mixing some of my work. And somebody asked me whether there was a kind of a lyrical theme on this, because as with Centra Zoon, as with Wild Opera, I'd not thought of anything. There was no overriding lyrical theme concept. This was just what I was feeling when I was waking up. So all of the tracks on the album, I've probably written about 23 tracks. And there are probably eight or nine radically different directions. And it was, I would wake up, I would write, and it was how I was feeling, what was obsessing me. And so it really could go from, you know, the last two tracks written for the album, one of them is one of the most dark, dismal, depressing, paranoid pieces I've Mm -hmm. ever written. Mm -hmm. The piece that followed is possibly the jolliest electropop song I've ever come up with, even though the lyric is about communist Czechoslovakia. But (laughs) it's what was preoccupying me in that moment. So it's kind of, you know, of course, to an extent, you refine what you're doing, as we did with Centrazune, as we did with some of Wild Opera. But Mm -hmm. it's about capturing that feeling and capturing it effectively. Um, so yeah, so so for me, I think that you know, music it goes through two channels for me. It's it's either thinking this is something I've not developed fully, it can be explored more. So somebody like Talk Talk, Mark Hollis, or even Van Morrison, or um, yeah, I was going to say Miles Davis, but Miles Davis had radical shifts in his career, but. There's a kind of a logical evolution. Mark Hollis's career seemed to be building to a point of silence where he had a certain sound and that sound became more abstracted, more pure as he went on. And then you have the Bowie Prince approach, which is you're taking ideas from everywhere. You are the magpie. You are the squirrel. You're just kind of looking at everything around you and it's coming through. And to an extent, I suppose, Miles Davis fits more into that as well, where Miles Davis and David Bowie never lost their voice. You know, if you listen to that central core voice, it's a voice that you hear throughout their entire careers. And yet the superficial elements of what they did radically shifted um, as their careers progressed. And, and as I said, I've always been fascinated by these things. I guess on one level, David Bowie, Miles Davis, it's kind of creative ADHD. Mm-hmm. Whereas people like Hollis, people like Van Morrison, it's a bit like Dennis Potter once said, I've got this small plot of land and I keep on finding a tiny, tiny bit. And then I find another bit beside it. So in a way, it's remarkably connected. 
you know, I think Zappa, whose music did shift, to be fair, but Zappa always said he was writing one composition throughout his life. It was all connected. But I think there are two kind of ways. There are ways where you just kind of feed in on yourself on that small plot of land that's yours, that's your emotion, your quite limited set of tastes, and you investigate that blade of grass, then that blade of grass. And I think that's the Hollis way. Or there's this thing where you are the Bowie, the Prince, the Miles Davis, where you just kind of look at that world around you and you filter it through your limited persona. Because, of course, we're all limited by our abilities and so on. Yeah, so with, with lyrics, how much would you say uh, of your lyric writing actually has a direct personal experience as the basis or at least for the inspiration or the sort of like the imaginary world that you can build around something? Does it, does it always have something to do with um, something personal or it, could it be totally like a fantasy novel where everything is made up? Yeah. I think that it always has a personal connection. So when I was writing Lost in the Ghostlight, which was the only time where I wrote, a, you know, and I and I wrote an essay and a, an entire discography for a band and an entire history of a person's life. But I still felt myself emotionally connected to it. And in some ways, I still, even though this character was 20 years older, the idea is that it's a character who's 20 years older than me, who has experienced a different creative life. It was partly a kind of a love letter to the album, which I think the album years also is a love letter to the album. Um, but it was also about how people who were revolutionized in 1967, who felt they were making a difference to society with music, um, how they then felt in the 1990s and the 2000s, when everything had been reduced to commerce or playing to 50 aging fans in a town hall in Blackburn. So it's how do you feel when at one point you felt you were changing the world and now all you're doing is reinforcing genre stereotypes. So there was an aspect of that. And of course, I've never wanted to sort of rest on what I do. So within the character, some of the contradictions were my contradictions. Some of the experiences of the corrupt music industry were my experiences of, of the corrupt industry. Though overall, it was a story about someone else that I'd even researched. You know, I remember on, on um, Abandoned Natural Dreams, there's a, there's a song that I wrote with Andrew Keeling. And because I know of Andrew Keeling's interests, I deliberately wrote it about someone working in a factory in Lancashire in the early 1900s who had been, in a way, carried away by the promise that she'd read in novels or the promise she'd heard in a passing piece of music. And I went into great detail, actually studying a particular factory in a particular town, what the escape route would be for this person. So, you know, when I get involved in the story or the fancy lyric, I take it quite seriously. But I guess I also have the personal element where I suppose I always felt that I escaped my restrictive and restricting background as a result of being blown away by music, film, literature. Yeah, I, I, I do remember vividly your, your, the extent of your curiosity 
Um, and I, I, I feel, I mean, I don't, you tell me that that's still like a, a big driver of, of at least, I mean, I know of your music, um, exploring music of others, but also your mm -hmm. lyric writing and also your music writing. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting to me because you need to understand that I, because I work purely in instrumental music, that yeah. level that you kind of like have in your work, um, to me, it's it from the outside, it looks like it's two things that you bring together. Um, right. so I would also maybe like to hear something from you about how you see how the two worlds of the creating of the sound or the written word and the spoken word and the sung word and the arranged word into musical context, musical context, how that all relates uh, to each other. Well, I think I've always been drawn to the word. You know, I kind of, I used to write short stories and poems when I was in my teens. And I think that I found that lyrics were a better way to express some of those ideas more succinctly. And you're right, it, it's often a combination of fantasies or even political ideas that will fascinate me, but also personal experiences. Um, you know, as, as I was going to say about the new album, I was surprised that when I was listening to the mixes that Stephen gave me, somebody had asked me whether some of the personal difficulties that I've experienced over the last couple of years, whether they had found their way into the lyrics. And I thought nothing of it until I read two or three of the lyrics and thought, ah, they're in there. So subconsciously it comes through uh, some of the, the difficulties that you're facing. So I, I think creativity for me, whether it's music or the written word, it's a combination of intention and accident, always. So sometimes a certain phrase takes you in a certain direction and you've told that story and you realize retrospectively what that story means in your life or what it's relating to in the world in general. Um, one thing I would say about lyrics and lyric writing, and again, it's because I've been listening to a lot of early Nomad. We're doing um, a One Little Indian retrospective box set. And we're also releasing a very special, unexpected No Man Archive album. And so Stephen and I, over the last couple of weeks, have been listening to things that we hadn't heard for 32, 33 years. And it was astonishing to me, I and mean, especially vocally, my vocals on these tracks, because a lot of people don't kind of realise that when I was singing in the 80s, probably up to 1990, there's a cutoff point of summer 1990. I had an incredibly loud voice. I used to come off no man gigs coughing up blood because I had screamed so loudly during the gig. And we were a very powerful live band. This is when it was myself, Stephen and Ben Coleman, who is still one of the greatest musicians I've ever worked with. And it was almost like you had this three front man band because we worked with backing tapes. And there was such desperation and such desire in what we were doing. I mean, it was insane. So we found some recordings from this period. And um, on one level, I'm absolutely delighted that I did them. On another level, I'm thinking, how did I do them? You know, we were, we were so angry. We were so desperate. And um, then there's a cutoff point, summer 1990, when we did Colours which featured a very restrained, lugubrious approach. And we got signed after that by a major publishing company and a major record label. And 
our approach changed. It was still very emotional, still very instinctive, but it was almost like overnight it changed. As it did before we were making this material in, in 89-90, because before that, Stephen and I were writing very ethereal, ambient, experimental work. We, we'd occasionally do some brutal noise experiments as well. But we uh, we had a guitarist who worked with us for um, for about a year called The Still Owl, which is a good name still. Yes. <laughs> um, Stuart Blagden, The Still Owl. And he's somebody I'd worked with in Manchester in the early 80s and He's a brilliant guitarist, but he never felt comfortable with rock. My, my feeling was, because he came from a classical and jazz background and was working with electric instruments he was unsure about, he was such an original player. But for him, he wanted to go and play Brazilian folk music, Django Reinhardt, mm-hmm. um, Rodrigo's Concerto de Ranwe. So he left the band. And when we left, when we lost the guitarist, we became a guitar band overnight because Stephen took over the guitar. And Stephen is a much more direct, aggressive, visceral player. So again, overnight, we changed in something like summer 1989. And then summer 1990, overnight, we changed. So this archive album we're working on captures this abnormal year in the history of No Man, when clearly we were taken over by an insanity. Um, but one of my theories on lyric writing, which goes back to your question, and it was listening to the early no man, is that a great song can have a terrible lyric, whereas a great lyric can't rescue a terrible piece of music or terrible song. So with the early no man, I think, um, whereas my lyrics had been very intense and very detailed, especially with the band um, I was in called Plenty, every track would be worked on in great detail. You know, we in, in terms of just its musical development and lyrical development, um, there was a lot of effort and a lot of attention to detail. And there still is. When I work with Brian Hulse, who I still work with, there's still a tremendous sense, partly because he and I both read novels quite voraciously. We both love poetry. We're both in awe of lyricists like Joni Mitchell, who manages to be poetic, profound, and yet still make glorious music. But I still believe in the rock and roll principle that actually some of the greatest rock music of all time has got awful lyrics. And so when we were doing the initial No Man, although there were some lyrics that I'm still quite pleased with, I can see the process. It was almost that Brian Ferry early rock and roll where actually I'm working entirely to the mood of the piece. So the the lyrics weren't as detailed, weren't as profound, perhaps up until Flower Mouth. I mean, profound. You know, I don't mean it in that sense. But they weren't as meaningful, perhaps up until um, Flower Mouth, because it was actually we were trying to create an experience that changed people. And I know that, you know, as I've said, not every album is Hijira or, you know, Randy Newman's Little Criminals or even Dark Side of the Moon that has these these marvellously mapped uh, lyrics. So I find that I tend to write lyrics to the project, if that makes any sense. So when I'm writing with Brian, I know that these are detailed, heartfelt pieces 
And so the lyrics are as detailed and heartfelt as I hope the music is. The, the same goes for working with Peter Chilvers. I think some of the best lyrics I've written have been with Peter as well. I think that, you know, Modern Ruins, I think, has got some of the strongest lyrics I've written. And with No Man, we're more about the overall sensation. This is a musical experience that we're trying to convey. And sometimes you know when you're doing that, that a clever lyric doesn't make the song any better. In fact, a clever lyric can often make the song worse because it can detract. With No Man, we're trying to create a world of imagination. Of course, there are lyrics that are meaningful. Of course, there are poetic moments. But generally speaking, we're wanting the overall effect. It's the love of the album. It's this idea of the artwork, the lyrics, the music. They're attempting to change an emotional state or influence an emotional state. Whereas with other projects, um, definitely these are things that I will take an awful lot of time laboring over the rhythm of words and every single word. With Centrazoon, with Wild Opera, this was an entirely different process again. And perhaps this is what I was doing with the solo album, the latest solo album, where it was, how do I feel? What's happening now in this moment? And so there's an improvised quality where the lyrics are just spewing out of me without me perhaps even knowing what they mean. And then at the end of it, I either keep it because it works within the context of the music, or I just slightly alter it so it has some kind of sense and meaning to me. Um, but sometimes they just come out fully fledged. So, for example, you know, the track I was saying, the, the most dark and dismal piece I think I've ever written, which was just before <laughs> the almost holiday summer electropop anthem. Um, it's a tremendously coherent um, piece about a totalitarian state. And I was thinking, how has this even come out of me? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was in effect almost about, let's say, um, a Russian general who in some way has been washed out of history. And it was a coherent piece of work from start to finish. And, and the same happened weirdly. I remember one of the first tracks I ever wrote with um, Brian Hulse. And... Um, this side of the border, I think. And it was utterly bizarre in that it had this very specific East German behind the wall escape lyric. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe I've been reading too much John Le Carre at the time. I'm not sure, but it just kind of came out um, without me necessarily um, thinking about it. But then again, to go back to one of your things, even though that story is about a life I've never led, a world I've never experienced, I immediately found myself locked into the mind of the protagonist in that story. Their desperation, their fear of being caught in the spotlight. So it becomes a personal, emotional song, even though it's got nothing to do with me. I mean, that's all super fascinating. And so now going back to what you said about writing to the mood of the music, sort of yeah. like almost, let's say, almost catering to what is there. So now being in the situation, like you being in the situation where you're also the musician playing the instruments yeah. or writing the music, so you're doing everything. Um, it's kind of fascinating to me, like what happened there? 
like because you have the option to kind of like go back and forth in either direction at all times so you could you know what i mean like it's 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 much yeah. more compl complex in a way than working with somebody else because you have you have more more freedom to have like feedback loops and you can respond to yourself in yeah. any possible way so how how did that so what what does what does that song it's, sound exactly, like? It's, it, <laughs> it's remarkably similar. It's a remarkably similar process. And I've I've always written you know I've written songs myself ever since um, I started playing instruments. Um, so I when I was in my first ever band, um, I actually used to play organ live. I would play simple organ stabs mm -hmm. and so on. So I've always kind of written and. You know, again, on the very earliest snowman work in the late 80s, quite a number of those pieces would have been singer-songwriter pieces that I'd have written on a guitar that had strings missing or my cheap organ, you know, when it's all I could afford. Mm -hmm. So I've always kind of written, but in a sense, when I go into writing, it's, it's exactly the same. So if you were to send me a piece now or Stephen or Brian or Peter, I'd be listening to that, first of all, can I hear a melody? This is the important thing. I've got to be able to hear that I can do something with it. Even if it's like things I've done before, can I do something slightly different with it? So first of all, it's can I hear a melody that I like? So I always, almost always, write to the melody. So I would say in 85, 90% of times when I'm either responding to something you've sent me or responding to something I've just written. And I don't know what I'm going to write. You know, when I wake up, I do not know what I'm going to write. It's a sound that gets... So the music me. is first. The music is first. The, the sound music is first. Is always first. Always oh, okay. first. Mm -hmm. Even with me. So, mm -hmm. it's, so it's, it's basically the same process. So I write mm -hmm. the piece. And I then go where the piece takes me. And this piece, as I said, it could be this dark, dismal thing or whatever happened, this incredible sense of optimism that perhaps I was feeling that day that, you know, it, it lifts. So it can be a sound that inspires me. It can be a chord because I consider myself to be a non-musician. I mean, I can play and have been able to play since the 80s all your basic chords, you know, all of your three chord tricks and so on. I know them. And sometimes I still get pleasure out of that. But generally speaking, I just pick up a guitar and I hear something because I, I'm not a musician. I don't know what chord, you know, it might be just something really dull, like D major six, but I don't know what it is. Um, and so where does that take me? And the same with writing on the keyboard. And one of the things that I always quite liked is the, the warm up man forever, which is um, you know, it, it's one of the more popular solo pieces. And I love the fact that most musicians I work with say, you do know that a proper musician would never have written that. The interval between the verse and the chorus is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> it's just what sounds right to me. <laughs> so again, I can sort of have compound chords or dissonances because, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so it's the same process that basically when I write instrumentally, so even a singer-songwriter piece, you know, like um, Sweetheart Raw, one of the early No Man pieces, or Back When You Were Beautiful, a No Man piece, they began with me just writing a sort of four to six chord acoustic piece, strumming. You know, I, I've always been able to do your kind of Neil Young troubadour in the bedroom thing. <laughs> And then I'll take it to a superior musician like Stephen or Michael Bearpark or Brian, 
And they might do a chord inversion or a key change, or maybe even add a chorus because they think, okay, this chord shift works. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, again, it's it's responding to, to that. But on the other hand, I always write. So I'm always jotting down musical ideas. You know, if I'm wandering around Ikea and an observation hits me, it's in the notes on my iPhone. <laughs> um, and it was always on a piece of paper that I used to carry around me on on buses in Warrington. You know, if I'm if I'm witnessing that argument and that near killing in Norwich at 3 a.m. in the morning, it's being documented. So I'm continually writing. So phrases are coming to me. And sometimes, as with, say, the centrosome, I might have a few phrases. And that works with the rhythm of the music and it works with the feel of the music or the titles. I'm, I continually collate song titles. The, and, the super, supermarket in Gutersloh. Yes. <laughs> the supermarket in Gutersloh was tremendously inspiring. Yeah, I would stand around, look at the vegetables, feel the quality of that German rye bread. It was incredible. Um, and then witness the discussions. And, and the thing is that obviously... In Germany and uh, the Netherlands, I am like a garden gnome. You know, everybody <laughs> is, is, is obviously seven feet tall. Um, and it's, and so there's that experience where I'm almost like a child again in a Gutersloh supermarket and I can observe everything <laughs> around. So, so, yeah, continually I'm taking notes and some of those notes end up as titles or it ends up as the starting point for a lyric where I've got the rhythm. And actually, it suggests a particular concept as well. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, with the um, with the Centrosome, with Wild Opera, there was a sense of it being an ebullient chaos, which I really liked, because sometimes you can get meaning from chaos. You know, the William Burroughs cut up method of literature, mm -hmm. which I guess it's close to, in a way, he would write and then he'd cut them up. And Bowie, of course, stole this. Um, and you put them together and then there's new connections. But of course, you don't leave. What people don't realize is you don't just have these random connections. You see the connections and maybe let's say out of 10 cut ups or 10 random lyrics. Three work. That's what you go with. And then you extend it. And also in another sort of lyric writing question, I don't know whether you do this with music yourself. But whereas for me, you know, a musical piece, yeah, I was about to say, a musical piece is always elastic. So, you know, when I'm playing live with my band, we do no man pieces, we do solo pieces. They're completely different from the recorded versions because I like to work to the strengths of the musicians I'm working with. So you go with how they take the piece. Lyrics similarly are flexible in the sense that, you know, this weekend I've done some re-recording for Plenty, and a band called Fijiri Group, Stefano Pananzi. And I've altered the lyrics because I don't quite identify with what I wrote at that point, or I think this was a bit of lazy writing. So I've rewritten it. You know, so I can't let anything lie either. You know, it's almost like an mm -hmm. ongoing process. And I'm sure that with quite a number of my albums, if I were to do them now, the feeling might be different. Uh, the lyric might be different. You know, I'm finding this with my voice. I mean, how great is it that we can not only remaster the albums, but we can remaster our yeah. lyrics or right? and 
And and I, you know, what I think is also good is that you can always have the original. You know, for me, I tend to be a completist. So if I was doing, let's say, like we did last year, we or during the pandemic, we re-recorded almost all of the plenty material from the 80s. And of course, I adapted the lyrics. I changed my vocal styles. The, the band had changed instrumentally. But we kept what we'd done now, us in the present moment, and the original 1980s demos, because I can live with those now. You know, I, even, I might have been embarrassed about them for 20 years, but I'm thinking, well, look, that's what I did. And in mm. fact, there are the kernel of good ideas in there. You know, so, and, we, and that's what we're doing, hopefully, you know, with, with Nomad. It'd be wonderful to go back to some of these pieces and, and rewrite them in some ways. But yeah, um, if I've got the opportunity, I will, if I feel it's necessary, rewrite the lyrics as well. You know, because thinking, okay, that was clumsy, that didn't work, or I could have expressed this better. So creativity is very much an ongoing process. And I'm saying that it's the same with my voice. You know, when I started in the 80s, I was incredibly loud. When we started up again, in a sense, in the early 90s, when no one was signed, it was a much more controlled, suave approach, which of course suited the music. And I found that over the last two or three years, and I don't know why, I'm understanding more of what I did in the 80s when I was seemingly demented. I think, okay, I can hear this and why it works. And Stephen sent me, he sent me a couple of demos that we did when we first started working together. You know, the story is true that we talked on the phone, we'd written letters, we'd sent mixtapes to each other. I then went to his house and we talked for four hours. And then we just wrote two songs, a, a bit like we did with Centrum. We just wrote two songs together. And one of them was this eight minute stately ballad with an epic rock finale. And another one was a two and a half minute brutal slab of noise called Screaming Head Eternal. And um, Stephen sent me Screaming Head Eternal and another piece that's never been released from the same era and said, I kind of miss this. And I, and, I, and I understood exactly what he meant. There was such a sense of liberation and madness. And while that has not gone full circle. I've been re-recording a lot of the Plenty material, the Fijiri material, and of course my new material. And it's certainly got more body, more volume, and it's pushing what I do. Um, I often kind of, well, I don't know, it was a phase. I often slightly regret some of the stuff I did from about 2001 to maybe 2011 because it was almost going in on myself. I listen back to that now and I feel like I'm disappearing. Luckily, the No Man album, School Your Ghost, didn't sound like that. Mm -hmm. But there are things that were released around that time. And I think, why aren't I projecting? I'm almost embarrassed of myself. It almost sounds like I'm disappearing vocally. And strangely, I think over the last 11 years, it's getting more and more physical, more and more present. As I said, it's not at that full circle of the mm -hmm. full belt. Um, but I, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm going with it because basically I think that creatively you sort of follow. Well, you know, I tend to anyway, you follow 
where your feelings are. You're chasing those feelings. And for whatever reason, okay, that lyric suggesting this, I'm going with it. For whatever reason, I need to sing with slightly more force. So, for example, when we recorded this Plenty track this week, it's a piece called Brave Dreams and Foolish Waking, which was originally done in 1990. And the lyric's been a tiny bit modified. But whereas the 1990 version is up there and it's maybe too extreme, the remake in 2018 was really down there. And it's almost pitched here now. It's pitched in between. And it's not because I'm deliberately pitching it in between. It's because that's what feels natural. And I listen to the 1990 and think, what the hell was he doing? And I listen to the 2018 and think, what the hell was he doing? So there's always a constant dialogue in my own mind, almost with my previous self. Um, I, I because think, I you, think... know, you know, Tim, it's, it's fantastic because I think that you are very much, uh, um, I, I don't have the right words for this, but you're very much a man of the moment, let's say. And like whatever, I guess, emotions you're feeling, the states that you're in, but also the state of the world around you kind of like influences yeah. how, how you're singing, you like how you're expressing yourself. Um, and I, I know, I, you know, it's funny because I, because I've been a fan of yours since sort of like 95 or something. Um, I, I, I think I, I, I kind of get it, you know, like, if you know what I mean, I can, I can, I can hear it in your voice. I can hear it in the way that you write in the, in the way, as you say, like in the volume, in the, mm. um, and so and this this maybe kind of like um kind of attaches to what you're doing with um that podcast you're doing with Stephen going through it, you mm -hmm. know those album album years yeah, or what is it called? Yeah, yeah yeah okay so um so i see i think that also probably the music that you're listening to is having a big influence on where you are going or where you are musically yourself right so yeah. so that's why i'm curious uh, so what music did you listen to in the 80s when you were singing much louder than you did later on or well, was was there a particular artist you discovered that made you kind of like go softer <laughs> in the early 90s i don't know <laughs> that might have been i mean it's a difficult thing yeah i mean again my relationship to music shifts so there are favorites of mine that have always been favorites of mine but i'd say that let's say you know i'm not one of those who i loved this when i was 15 so i love it now you know I hate a lot of what I liked when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, but maybe I like 40, 50% of it. Um, again, my relationship changes. I mean, yeah, influence to an extent. I mean, when I started, I suppose I was very influenced by, I, I guess there were a few singers. There was a whole, also the goth scene was surrounding. When I was starting up, there was that very dark goth scene. And I, while not being a huge fan, always had a strong interest in, say, Sisters of Mercy or Nick Cave and the birthday party and so on. But, you know, when I first started my my idols in terms of singing and creativity might have been, you know, Kate Bush always, but Peter Hamill, Peter Gabriel, Robert Fripp was certainly always there. Brian Eno was always there. David Bowie, of course. Mm -hmm. Since 2019, for obvious reasons, there's been a massive change in the way in which people communicate. 
the way of the world. It seems a lot more precarious, a lot more dangerous, a lot more restrictive in some ways. And I have absolutely no doubt that the seeming pressures of contemporary life are impacting on my work, even without me knowing it. I think that's possibly what's driving some of this. And similarly, what you may or may not know is that when I started off in the early 80s in the northwest of England, it was unemployment, devastation. Cities like Liverpool hadn't recovered from the Second World War. There were still really you know, places that hadn't been rebuilt. It was extraordinarily poor, extraordinarily difficult. And even though my background wasn't particularly poor, I still had unemployment. I still had difficulties. But I just channeled that into writing lyrics, into writing music. And so where I think there's maybe a parallel and maybe why I can understand it more is that the 80s felt more politically precarious, you know, with uh, we had the Brixton riots, the Toxteth riots, a sense of an of an oppressive government um, and real tensions on the streets, which I guess I feel now. And I suppose it's that thing that we can't be impervious to what's happening around us, that it kind of gets through our skin, even when we don't realise. So that's the thing. But but, yeah, in terms of my listening, it's probably still as broad as it ever was. And I listen to music from the past, music from now. Um, and I just kind of still immerse myself into it. You know, music and, and reading books has never stopped being fun or emotionally liberating. And actually making music, one of the reasons why I can still make music is that I kind of forget what I did yesterday. So there's a creative ADHD, but also, when I'm writing with the sound, when I'm writing, every song I write feels like the first song I've ever written. And I get really excited in the way I did with the first song I ever wrote. And it's like, oh my God, I did this, I've written this. So as I said, I've written 23 songs to the new album. And bar the ones where I know that I've used relatively obvious major or minor chords, I couldn't tell you what I've played. I've forgotten the chords. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a piece on stupid things that mean the world that I wrote, and I was very pleased with it at the time because I think it has has got 16 chords and a key change. And I thought, I wrote this, <laughs> but I couldn't play it. Mm-hmm. I, I've forgotten completely how I wrote it. I remember I taught it to Bruce Sword, and I sent him a chord chart, and I've lost my chord chart. And um, so when I'm playing songs live with the band, even when I've written songs. I can't tell them the chords because I've forgotten the chords. They've got to learn from my recordings. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and again, and it's, and it's almost like I love it. It's not quite like dementia, but, you know, it's this thing that I'm, I'm writing a song. It's like, how did that happen? So <laughs> I love this feeling that when I write a song, it's like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And it's still like that um, as a process. Hey, so earlier you said that when there's music and you listen to it and then you 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 the first step for you for writing words is to see is there a melody like right and i'm interested in in like how do you like experience or how is that melody represented in you like are you are you physically humming along or 
Uh, are you actually representing it like with your body somehow, or is it a pure idea sometimes? Singing. I mean, basically what it is that, you know, if I hear something um, and sometimes you can immediately hear a melody. So immediately I start singing. So, you know, and I did this recently. It's like, uh, I, I've luckily been doing some stuff with, with Chris Hughes, the, the producer who produced Tears for Fears and, and other people. And I was in his studio and he was playing me this experimental electronic piece he'd been working on, which is far more from the school of Steve Reich, minimalism and so on. But I couldn't stop myself. I was singing melodies over this because I could hear mm -hmm. patterns. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's what suggests melodies to you. And sometimes something doesn't, and then you'll give it a few times and you, and you, and you write something just to prove you can write something to it, but it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's just, right it's there i can hear this i can hear that so i've tended to write lyrics to melodies because what i want is something that sounds and feels complete in itself so it's a song it's an experience and then the lyrics are written to that and quite often it could be that i've got a phrase already in my lyrics that fits with that rhythm or I just spontaneously come up with a line that fits that rhythm and the lyric comes from it. So it's purely, yeah, I will sing out loud. And um, and part of the reason I started working on the solo solo material is that I'd finished um, Butterfly Mind, which I really felt was quite fresh in several ways in sort of September 2021. And I didn't write anything for 14 months. I mean, I still kept on recording because I think you've always got to keep I remember Jacko Jackchick saying this. He said that he noticed a difference when he worked with musicians who just hadn't done anything for years. He said, you've got to carry on doing something to remain fresh. So even when I'm not writing, I'm re-recording something or I'm singing for someone else. Partly just to almost keep those muscles going, to keep that instinct going. So if I've not got an idea for a song, I've not got an idea for a song. It doesn't bother me anymore because I've not, I don't have to write anything anymore. You've got to feel something. You've got to mean it. And so I'd done like 14 months of not writing anything. I'd, I'd been sent lots of things by people, but nothing was suggesting the melodies. Or if it was suggesting the melodies, it was suggesting a melody I'd written before or something that didn't do it for me. And it was Brian um, who originally said, look, you know, with Butterfly Mind, you were sending me your demos and I was just making them more musical. And although I'm really pleased with what we did together, in some ways, perhaps I neutered the original spirit. So he said, I think you should just get it out of your system and do everything yourself. And then when I said that to Stephen Wilson and Peter Hamill, who, as I said, he was somebody I kind of idolised when I was young and he's become a friend. They said, yes, that's what you do. And it was funny, as soon as I started, I couldn't stop. You know, it was just kind of, I, I was writing. And luckily, the stuff I was writing, I could find the melodies to as well. You know, maybe this is it, that as, a, as primarily a singer, when you write songs, you're kind of writing knowing how a, a voice can fit there or or instinctively, even. you know, you, you sort of have this idea. You're hearing it and saying, okay, there's almost a subconscious element of, I know I'm going to be able to do something to this. Um, so, yeah, um, if that makes um, any sense. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, you know, I've got to go um, to fatherhood uh -huh. uh, as a topic. 
um but let's let's stay with 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 music like and and um sort of like how should i say uh understanding the world differently or better or um well let's just say differently when your father versus when you were not um do you do you see that as something that you know you can you can you see that influence in your work yeah i mean i th i think fatherhood affected me in two ways one is i think i've been a lot more productive since mm -hmm. i had a child and i think that's because you realize how little time you have mm -hmm. suddenly time becomes even more pressured even more present mm -hmm. and so i think that i have written more because i felt compelled to write more and also i think that when you're a father when you're a parent you have less time available and when i first wrote the stuff with stephen we were really prolific and the reason we were prolific is i'd go to his house maybe once a month and we had two days and we crammed a month's worth of stuff into two days because we knew that's all we had this was before you could send files to one another you know you were just working in the here and now so we'd often write anywhere between three to ten pieces in a weekend because that was the time we had available to us And I sort of found that, you know, since becoming a father, I've written more because I realized, you know, I've got a lot less time ahead of me than I have behind me. So there's that aspect, I think, becoming even more conscious of time, aging, blah, blah, blah. And then I think you see the world sometimes slightly differently. You can become, you know, my, my, my partner, Liz, she never really had the guts for horror films. I always did. Mm -hmm. And I find that I can immerse myself in them even more since the <laughs> grotesquerie <laughs> of it. Whereas she cannot mm -hmm. watch anything that is particularly grotesque or depressing. So, you know, my art film and horror film consumption has gone up. Hers has disappeared. <laughs> And I think it's the same thing. I think you become more, sometimes you become more frightened, more sensitive, and it's the way of dealing with that. So, you know, Flowers at the Scene, the title track from Flowers at the Scene, it's a genuine sort of story. So I wrote an entire story around it, but it really is a newspaper headline of um, a kid who'd been stabbed at a bandstand. Now, that, as a parent, sometimes it just affects you far more because you think that kid was my kid's age mm -hmm. and all they were doing was standing by a bandstand and they got randomly stabbed to death and then there were flowers by the bandstand so i wrote the lyric almost spontaneously because clearly being a father it makes that random headline way more personal and way more interesting to you so yeah you know of course the way in which you view the world you know i worry about how polarized things have become you know the way in which politically it seems exacerbated by social media that the extremes of right and left are no longer communicating mm -hmm. 
there doesn't seem to be communication. There doesn't seem to be forgiveness. It seems to be, you know, a slightly more turbulent, frightening world. And while I would have been aware of that anyway, I think I'm hyper aware of it because I got a 12 year old because I don't want that child to be cut adrift for a stupid mistake or a stupid phrase or doing things that kids do. You know, we're all we all go through this. And certainly as an adolescent, though I did some things I'm still very pleased with, you know, the amount of books I read or films I watched or albums I listened to, or even friendships I made. Some of those things I'm proud of, but some of the things I'm not, you know, I did stupid things when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, because I was a damaged child from a damaged background. That's what you do. Um, And so I think that the capacity to make mistakes is lesser than it was when we were younger. Um, and the world seems more, even more polarised. It seemed pretty polarised then to an extent, as I said, certainly in Britain, where we were going through a massive recession. And in the Northwest where I was, you know, uh, there's a great book I, I bought the other week, actually, partly because it just captures something. And it's called Youth Unemployment. And it's a photojournalistic book from 1981. Um And it's capturing Newcastle in 1981 and these lives that were lost through unemployment. It's how they're spending their days in these almost bomb sites of houses. And um, as I've said, while I came from a sort of slightly more plush village, I wasn't that far from those bomb sites and those cities. And I experienced it. You know, I would go into those areas. Um, So it was quite evocative of something I remember and yet it seems what's weird is it's 1981 looking at it now and I as I show my 12 year old who's obsessed with history in you know which is interesting he says god this could be the 1920s the level of deprivation the level of waste the way in which the houses look and I think that is kind of interesting that you know there was it in the neglected north of England of you know, the 1980s, there was still an echo of 1930s hardship, 1940s war, um, and so on and so forth. But yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying that having a child definitely does influence my writing. Uh, thank you. Let's leave it at that for, for today. No, it's well, like, well, I think you know, we, we always kind of got on when we met up, I guess, didn't we? Yes, we always had time yeah. to talk about it. And it's interesting, <laughs> I've noticed on, on your podcast show, you've talked to so many people I've worked with. Yeah. What have I done to offend Marcus? What have I done to offend him? <laughs> <laughs> Did we leave on such yeah. bad terms? I didn't think so. Yeah, ne- next uh, will be uh, Lord Chilvers, I guess. That oh, I really? I want to talk to, to Peter, yeah. Okay. <laughs> No, that would be good. Well, Peter, again, I think, you know, he always remains very nice and very open. Um, Mm. You know, he's a lovely person to work with. I think when I work with Peter, Peter has much more of a strong sense of his own identity and taste. So I think that what we work works within a stronger set of parameters than a lot of other things. But I think within those parameters, you know, as I hope, the best songs of modern ruins prove that we could still do new things with it mm-hmm. and also you know he's continually refining his taste with sounds so when i next work with him it might be in an emotionally similar territory 
but he will have found a new way to express what he expressed last time, you know. So, um, yeah, obviously, somebody I'm still in contact with and still a friend of, but, um, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to, um, later today, I'm going to go home and I'm going to find my returning Jesus CD and I'm going to play play that wonderful album to my daughter, for my daughter. Thank you. How old is your daughter now? She turned four yesterday. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Stammy is about to turn 13 next month. Mm -hmm. So that will be another interesting yeah, experience. Yes, yes, yes. So, but, but yeah, obviously, it'd be, it'd be lovely to talk about fatherhood, work, other things, and, and maybe even as well to, to do something else at some point together. Yes, that would be wonderful. So, Thanks for now, Tim. My pleasure. Say, say hi to everyone. I will be. <laughs> yeah. Bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.